Oh, hi, Floyd. Uh, uh, isn't that all about Berlin? All right. All right. Hey, it's terrific. It is. Well, about Birdland is a jazz classic. At last, we got some decent music in this gear. Ha! Why isn't the bear running things around here? Yeah! Why isn't the bear running things around here? Yeah! Why isn't the frog auditioning new comedians? Why isn't the bear keeping his mouth shut? Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, are you ready for season two? I am so ready for season two. You know, there's a lot of shows that, like, you hear this all the time. You just got to get through the first season, and then it gets good. Think about something like The Simpsons. Buffy the Vampire Slayer did this, too. Uh, Even the first season of The West Wing, which is pretty great, got so much better in the second season. I wouldn't call the first season of The Muppet Show unwatchable by any stretch. But what happens is you get enough practice at something, you get good at it. Oh, yeah. Basically, we've both played tabletop RP. People get more used to playing their characters after they've had a bit more practice at it. Starting the second season of The Muppet Show, I think we see they're, they're hitting their stride. They're real confident in these first two episodes. It's nice to see. They make a couple of weird choices, I think, in these episodes. This is a feat of lunatic daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Uh, Before we start, I would like to ask you to check us out on social media, at Lunatic Daring, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and lunaticdaring.com, where you can find all of our episodes, our bibliography, and our watch list. We just come out of a little hiatus. Uh, we finished the first season of The Muppet Show. We Hopefully you checked out our episode on Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. And now we're back doing season two of The Muppet Show, two episodes at a time. We should chit-chat and stuff, but I, I don't want to. I just want to, uh, I want to talk about, I want to talk about these shows. It's The Muppet Show with our very special guest star, Mr. Don Knotts. Okay, so before we start talking about the episodes themselves, we have to talk about some changes. I I know change is scary. As we've discussed earlier, Mark London and more importantly, Jack Burns are out as writers. John Lovelady and Aaron Oscar have left as performers. We're down to basically just the key five Muppet guys. Also between seasons, we've gotten a new Piggy puppet, a new Fozzie puppet, and a new Gonzo puppet. I don't know if you could tell. Could you tell that? I noticed it most immediately with Miss Piggy. I don't think we saw as much of Gonzo. I mean, we, we see him in the opening, but I I didn't catch the difference on him. Gonzo doesn't feature prominently in these two, but in the offseason, Piggy got kind of a rework. You notice she's a little softer looking. Her eyes are different, if I remember correctly. They've taken a step back from the Uncanny Valley. Fozzie, they've brightened up his color a little, and I believe they've removed the mechanism that made his ears wiggle because that never really worked. Hmm. And then Gonzo is the most, I would say, significant makeover, because Dave Goals took him into the workshop between seasons and uh, brightened his color up a little bit, opened his eyes up. You know, Gonzo was always just kind of squinty, and it always made him look sad. So he brightened his eyes up. He gave him this mechanism inside the puppet so he could widen his eyes. I think we're going to see the design changes in Gonzo are going to be immediately reflected in the character. When we see him, like you said, you're right. He's not in either of these episodes. So one of the first things you notice when you start these episodes is we now have a cold open. Mm-hmm. In the first season, the show just started. Starting now and for the rest of the run of the show, we're going to have these cold opens. And for the next three seasons, the cold opens are going to constitute Scooter popping his head into the guest star's dressing room. Don Knotts! 
25 seconds to curtain, Mr. Knob. And the guests are delivering a joke. We also have a brand new opening sequence. Yes, it seems more familiar because I, I want to call it the Hollywood Squares thing, and I know that's wrong. But it has the arches. Yeah. Yeah, the arches that are immediately identifiable with The Muppet Show were not present in that first season. So we have a huge brand new opening number. Now, there will be modifications made to it throughout the seasons, but this is pretty much going to be our opening number for the rest of the show. So just a few changes in it. It's got a new title card. It's much nicer looking. Kermit still pops out of it and welcomes everybody to The Muppet Show. Uh, and then it's pulled up into the rafters and he's kind of perched on top of of it and then um, the orchestra members are kind of a different place. The theater actually looks a little nicer. Mm-hmm. And then the curtain raises revealing a series of arches. Uh, a group of full-bodied Muppets walk around Muppets come out, uh, begin to dancing. We get Sweetums, Timmy Monster, Fog, and two of the mutations walk on the stage, do a little dance. And then we get our chorus lines. Now we've got uh, the females we got Miss Mousy, two chickens, a whatnot that looks a lot like Animal's Girlfriend, so I'm going to go ahead and say it's Animal's Girlfriend. Janice, a purple whatnot, Mildred, and Lydia, the tattooed lady. Piggy no longer qualifies as a chorus girl anymore. She's been upgraded. The male side is interesting. The male chorus comes out. You've got Dr. Strange Pork, who we haven't actually met yet. The Swedish chef, Sam, a gray mustached whatnot. George, because George is not going to be a huge character going forward, or he's kind of like suspended in amber almost <laughs> in the opening credits. That's a depressing thought. And then a blue frackle, another whatnot, Link Hogthrob, who also has not been introduced yet. A green frackle, and if you notice at the very end, the Jim Henson puppet. I wasn't sure if that was Jim or if it was Jerry. Yeah, no, Jim is in that little chorus line. In the season one opening, the title song took a little break for Fozzie to tell a joke. That's gone now. And instead, they now give Statler and Waldorf a joke. Uh, okay, and then um, instead of the cheap-ass birthday cake risers, at the end, Kermit is in the arches with the rest of the cast. And as the name of the show rises, it's kind of funny. Kermit and Fozzie run to get out of the way of it. And Kermit runs over to share his kind of arch with the Muppet Newsman. And Fozzie ends up sharing his with Bunsen Honeydew as this is what we call the Muppet Show comes up. And then Gonzo comes out of the O. And instead of a gong now, now he's got a trumpet. Sorry. And every episode, it's going to be him trying to blast out the last note of the theme song and have it usually go horribly wrong, just like it did when he was trying to hit it with a gong. Just for fun, the layout of the final shot from top to bottom with Muppets, first row, top row, Whatnot, Jerry Nelson, Uncle Deadly, Droop, a chicken, Beautiful Day Monster, Gorgon Heap, Svengali's assistant, a pig, Crazy Harry, a male Kuzbanian, Wanda, and Wayne. Second row, we have Miss Kitty, Fleet Scribbler. We also haven't met him yet either. Strange Pork, The Chef, Sam, a whatnot, George, Blue Frackle, another whatnot, Link, Green Frackle, Jim Henson, and Lenny the Lizard. Third row, another chicken, The Newsman, Dr. Teeth, Piggy, Kermit, Fozzie, Scooter, Bunsen, and yet another chicken. Fourth row, female Kuzbanian, Lydia, Mildred, a whatnot, Janice, you guessed it, uh, another chicken. Uh, Animal's Girlfriend, another chicken, and Miss Mousy. And then the bottom row, another damn chicken, Baskerville, T.R. Rooster, a whatnot woman, Manamana, Mel the Bird, and then finally just another kind of generic whatnot. Hey, listen, our guest star tonight is the slightly nervous but very funny Mr. Don Knotts. Tell me about Mr. Don Knotts. Okay, so usually I don't actually recognize the guest stars. We're, we're about like... Let's say we're a little less than 50-50. Yeah, we're a little less than 50-50. That's a very generous thing. I recognize Don Knotts. He's best known for the Andy Griffith show and Three's Company, which surprised me because I haven't seen as much of that one. But I actually know him primarily from The Incredible Mr. Limpet. I wish. I wish I were a fish. 
but I'm, I'm getting out of myself. Don Knotts, born Jesse Donald Knotts, on July 21st, 1924. He doesn't seem like a Jesse. He doesn't, but like... Jesses tend to be cooler. That might be why he went by Don. Don seems about right. He was born in Morgantown, West Virginia, to farmer William Jesse Knotts and his wife, Elsie Knotts. He was a farmer? He was the son of a farmer. Did they have a berry farm? Oh, I didn't look into that, but it would be better if he did. Knotts Berry Farm, California's original theme park. Okay, go ahead. His father died of pneumonia when he was 13. He was the youngest, I, I don't know if I said this already, he was the youngest of four brothers. His mom ran a boarding house. He, he saw a lot of early tragedy. His dad suffered from mental illness, I believe, alcoholism and schizophrenia, and he was kind of a violent drunk. And then he enlisted into the army and served in World War II. He would go on to earn a bachelor's degree in education with a minor in speech from West Virginia U in his hometown of Morgantown. Uh, he graduated in 1948. Going back a little bit, before Don entered high school, he was already performing as a ventriloquist and a comedian at various church and school functions. He would eventually travel to New York to try to make his way as a comedian, but it didn't really stick. So he ended up going back to West Virginia to go to college. And from there, he went into the army. So that, that bug was there early, but it didn't really, it didn't take off. He was part of the Pacific Theater when he was serving in the war. He did perform comedy when he was enlisted, part of a variety show called Stars and Gripes. He was continuing with his ventriloquism, which is actually, I, I didn't see any clips of him performing as a ventriloquist, but it sounds terrifying because I don't, like, I'm imagining which of the two of them had the bigger eyes. He was discharged in 1946 with the rank of technician grade five. He was awarded the Victory Medal, the World War II Victory Medal, the Philippine Liberation Medal, the Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal with four bronze service stars. Army Good Conduct Model, Marksman Badge with an M1 Carbine, and Honorable Service Lapel Pin. Uh, he got his first major break on television in the soap opera Search for Tomorrow, where he appeared from 1953 to 1955, and then he started to actually gain more fame. At this point, if not before, he was already coming across as a regular, very, very nervous man. And his first time on film was actually in a film called No Time for Ser Sergeants. Yeah, I've seen that. I, I have no idea what it is. I, I wouldn't expect you to. Okay. Don was actually reprising a role that he played on Broadway in a play of the same name as a sort of high-strung Air Force test administrator. In 1960, he was offered the opportunity to headline his own sitcom, uh, which everyone knows today as The Andy Griffith Show. It ran from 1960 to 1968. Most people that I know who would think of Don Knotts think of him as Barney Fife. The first thing you do is to get the psychological edge on your adversary by showing supreme confidence. How do you do that? You stand your ground. You brace yourself in case he throws that first punch. And then you just look him straight in the eyes like this. <laughs> like this, Barney? Yeah, that's coming. Close the eyes just a little bit more. <laughs> now, the next thing in self-defense is muscle control. And when you brace yourself for that first punch, you make yourself hard all over, and nothing can hurt you. Let me show you. And you hit me right there, just as hard as you can. Well, it won't make a dent. <clears throat> Go ahead, Oak. It's okay. Come on, Oak. Come on. See, I'm braced. See? Yeah, you can't hurt me. Come on. All you got. Come on. <laughs> he always had that sort of, not a lilting voice, but like a, a very easily excitable high-pitched voice that would drop down again. Much like uh, Jim Neighbors, right? Kind of. From the same show, yeah. Don would win five Emmy Awards for Best Supporting Actor in a Television Comedy. What ended up happening was, in No Time for Sergeants, 
Andy played the comedic lead and Knotts was the straight man, but they ended up reversing that for the Andy Griffith show, which is probably why I think more people do remember... I don't remember Andy Griffith doing much on the show. I'm sure he did plenty. But I mostly just remember Don Knotts' reactions and that whistling theme. Griffith was the calm center. Mm -hmm. With past bios that we've covered in the podcast, we've discussed that at this point in time, you see a difference between what it means to be a television star versus a movie star. And you're not going to see as much crossover. Uh, Don had both film and television roles, but I think he is predominantly known as a TV star, both for the Andy Griffith show and for what would later be Three's Company. The Incredible Mr. Limpet came out in 1964. He was featured in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. I hope I didn't say mad too many times. Nobody really knows. (laughs) He had a five-film contract with Universal, which yielded a movie called The Ghost and Mr. Chicken in 1966. (laughs) Yeah, it did. (laughs) What was that you just did? Oh, that was just, that's karate. <laughs> I didn't know you knew karate. Oh, yeah, I've been studying it by mail for years. <laughs> the Reluctant Astronaut in 1967, The Shakiest Gun in the West in 1968, The Love God in 1969, and How to Frame a Fig in 1971. I feel like these are just like weird words. I, I haven't seen any. I'll have to track some of them down. After... How to Frame a Fig. Don kept working steadily, and he was back in television. He made a lot of guest appearances on different TV shows, but he didn't really find another iconic role until he did end up on Three's Company in 1979. Mr. Furley. Mr. Furley, which I don't think I've ever seen an episode of Three's Company. I mostly know John Ritter from The Problem Child, and don't hate me for that. I haven't seen a Three's Company episode in a very long time. My guess is they probably don't age very well. They're probably still kind of funny. But the real highlight of that show was always John Ritter. Like, John Ritter was the reason to watch that show. Like, you know, I guess, uh, what's her name? Suzanne Summers was for a while, too. But, like, it's not a great show. He surpassed the show, you know. He, he elevated the show. I guess it probably wouldn't fly today. The whole premise of Three's Company is the only reason he's allowed to be roommates with these two women is that he says that he's gay. The entire dynamic between John Ritter and Don Knotts on that show is uh, is John Ritter trying to convince Don Knotts that he's gay when he's really, really, really not. Like, really not. <laughs> in 1986, Don and Andy would reunite for a made-for-television film called Return to Mayberry, where he would reprise his role as Barney Fife. He would be in and out of different television shows and make cameo appearances and a couple of different things. Or one of the latter day things that I saw him in was actually Pleasantville. Yeah, he's great in Pleasantville. He was, he was really, really good. He was very well cast. He was recognized with the Hollywood Walk of Fame star in the year 2000. He, like many of our other Muppet Show guests, turned to a career in voiceover as he got later on into his career. To say that, he was in the new Scooby-Doo Adventures a couple of times, and I think the 70s, the 80s. It's a skeleton! Do something, Don! I am! This is as fast as I can run! But he, he had roles on Robot Chicken and later Scooby-Doo releases. He was in the Chicken Little movie that came out in 2005. Was that Zach Braff? I think it... I wanted to say it was. I wasn't sure. I think it was Zach Braff that played Chicken Little. The final time that he appeared with John Ritter on screen was in a cameo role for Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Teenage Daughter. As all of this is going on, he is also 
experiencing some macular degeneration, which is causing him to go blind. He would pass at age 81 on February 24th, 2006, effectively from pneumonia related to lung cancer. He's buried at the Westwood Memorial Park in Los Angeles. Don Knotts occupies a similar mimetic space to Ethel Merman in that they're just these figures in Americana who aren't presidents, aren't politicians, but still became cultural touchstones for those conversations about different character archetypes that you would associate with the media of the 20th century. Like, if you see someone doing an illustration of Don Knotts, as soon as you see those eyes and those ears, you're like, oh, I know that guy. He's uh, he's that one guy, right? Even if you haven't seen anything with them, they do become, like you said, these cultural touchstones. These They become part of the zeitgeist. They become, I mean, he's a, he is an icon, right? Maybe a lower class of icon or a smaller scale icon than, than, than some others, but he is a very stark representative of American television, you know, for like 30 years, you know, starting with, with, uh, Andy Griffith and, and into, um, Three's company, like, you know, Don Knotts is a, was one of the big T is a big TV star. And just like with Jim neighbors, him and Jim were the two breakout stars from Andy Griffith, right? Because they were playing showier characters. So before uh, you tell us about the episode, what did you think of him in general? I liked him. Yeah. That's sort of an unanswered, but we're, we're getting into the second season and we're with the early guests that we saw in the first season, a lot of them didn't necessarily know how to be with the Muppets or weren't that well integrated. And even in this episode, it does feel a bit more like it's a premiere episode that happens to have Don there. But every time you see Don on screen, it seems like he's exactly where he's supposed to be. His general perceived cluelessness and the way that Fozzie's backstage story develops in the non-Disney Plus version does seem like a really good mirror or manifestation of that cultural touchstone that we were just discussing. 25 seconds to curtain, Mr. Knotts! Well, what are you doing hiding there behind the table? Listen, nobody told me I had to share a dressing room. Didn't they tell you about her? Her! Honestly, I don't know what Neutral Dawn would look like, but this Dawn is visibly nervous or a little uncomfortable because he didn't realize he'd be sharing his dressing room. And you can see like a little bit of the purple moving around behind the divider, but you're not really sure what you're going to see. And honestly, I half expected the Muppet to eat Dawn, but he's a little uncomfortable about sharing the room. And then Gorgon Heap pops her head up and asks, What's the matter, sweetie? You don't like Chorus Girl? She looks a little bit like Grimace <laughs> from McDonald's. So this is our first cold open. What do we think these add? What we saw first season and beyond this episode, I'll try to cut down as much of this comparison as I can. What we saw first season was them trying to figure out how to integrate things. This is your first touchstone of the episode. And if the first thing you see on the episode is the guest, not the guest as presented as, for lack of a better term, a trophy of sorts, where you just see them put up on a podium on the stage, but you actually see them yeah. interacting in scene. As themselves. As themselves. Uh, you have a shorter trip to immersion. When I hear Scooter say 15 seconds to curtain, 25 seconds to curtain, whatever it is, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's my that's my indicator that the Muppet Show is about to start. Mm -hmm. And that, that was something that was missing. It gives the guest star a good time to have a joke, and it puts them backstage, which is something that I think we both enjoy more when they do get some backstage time. So after the opening credits, uh, we get into our first bit of Muppet Nightmare Fuel for the second season, <laughs> which is yeah. the, the gingerbread men sing Sweet Gingerbread Man. Feel 
feel like I'm made out of gingerbread. Uh huh. Uh huh. Crumb picking, lip licking gingerbread. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh, it was written by Hall of Fame songwriters Alan and Marilyn Bergman for the 1970 film The Magic Garden of Stanley Sweetheart. It's the only time that Frank Oz would take lead vocals on a song that wasn't a main character. The background dancers are Jim, Jerry, Richard, and Dave, uh, with Frank operating the puppet that's actually singing. Describe it to me. I don't want to sleep tonight. Describe it to me. All right. I mean, you asked. (laughs) So imagine, if you will, a set that looks like a painted set for a play in like a high school, complete with four grown men in gingerbread costumes looking at you with these red red beady eyes not like kill bill red eyes it's just like the the small dot unblinking beady red eyes all of them have dots going down the center of their costume and i'm pretty sure if i remember correctly all of them have a dot that goes exactly over the crotch as well and they're staring into your soul meanwhile you've got a narrator gingerbread man who's up front conducting the chorus as they sing about the finer things in life peppermint uh-huh uh-huh Nice, icky, hand, sticky peppermint. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, the one in the foreground is a hand puppet, because it actually has articulation with his mouth and everything. The others are just costumes. Man, this one baffles me. I, so, when I was in college, my first job was being an RA on my campus, right? And weird stuff always happens after two or three in the morning. You usually don't want to be out because you don't want to have to write anyone up for anything. But on a couple of occasions, I'd be coming back, and I would get out of the elevator. And one of my residents, for whatever reason, owned a full-body Gumby costume. I don't know who it was to date. (laughs) But I would just get out of the elevator at two in the morning, exhausted from class or whatever else I was dealing with, and I would see Gumby run by, and Gumby was like six feet tall. And I didn't sleep a lot, so I was worried that I might be delusional. But I wasn't sure if I'd seen it, so I was like, maybe it's nothing. And then Gumby would run right back by, going the other direction. I'm Gumby, dammit! And that Gumby had the same red eyes that all of the gingerbread men have in this particular sketch. So I'm not saying that I was triggered, but I'm glad that I didn't watch this right before I went to bed. It's a strange way to open the season. Yeah. I've never quite got this one. When I watch it, it's hard for me not to think of (laughs) Jim, Jerry, Richard, and Dave in those suits (laughs) doing their very rudimentary dancing. Let's not have an opening number with Piggy or nothing. Let's do some gingerbread men. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for a non-Christmas episode. <laughs> I'm just imagining one of those things chasing you down the street, though, which is, it's simultaneously terrifying and also really funny because they're inherently pigeon-toed. Like, their feet, their toes are always pointing outward. Yeah. Like, I don't know what happens if it catches you. You just don't want it to. Maybe it makes you one of them. I literally have no opinions on it other than it's bizarre because <laughs> I can't, I don't, I don't, I can't make a judgment on it one way or another. Bash out of the pan, sweet gingerbread man. After that, we go... We go back to the curtains where we see Fozzie announcing that he's going to help Kermit plan tonight's show. And as much as you can expect Kermit to be, he's being a good sport about it, but he's still... Thank you. Hi, hiya, hiya. Hey, hey, hey. Listen, Kermit is letting me help plan tonight's show. Oh, that's true, folks. He plans his parts and I plan the good parts. (laughs) Kermit! I'm just kidding, Fozzie. Go ahead, make your introduction. Oh, okay. Moving right along, we take you now for a trip into inner space. Honestly, the following sketch seems more like it should have been introduced by Gonzo, but that's neither here nor there. Fozzie tells us that we're going to be taking a trip into inner space. Inner space. And here's the thing. 
I was waiting for Dennis Quaid to show up. <laughs> Here's the thing. We're recording this episode a year into a pandemic where hopefully people have been staying inside. Realistically, a lot of people haven't. This thing, like everything down to its facial expression, where when it's staring straight at you, like an apex predator, it's just anxiety. Like it's this, this Muppet that's yeah. green with pink hair and a rotating wheel of a leg on one side, which I'm just not going to think about too much. We open the sketch with the screaming thing talking about. I'm terribly calm and tranquil. I'm very, very relaxed indeed. And on the inside, he starts singing a song called The Windmills of Your Mind. On the outside, but on the inside, I'm like a circle in a spiral, like a wheel within a wheel, a never-ending beginning on a never-spinning reel. I haven't heard the original version of the song, but it seemed like a couple of the sketches we saw from last season where every chorus or every verse, the song started getting faster. Him talking about his anxiety, but it's also very authentic to the way anxiety can feel if you're outwardly presenting as calm. What I find crazy is that song is from the Thomas Crown Affair. So I've heard that name before. I was going to ask you, because I'm not cultured, what is the Thomas Crown Affair? The 1968 one is a Steve McQueen movie where he plays a, an art thief like a high-end art thief. And then there was a remake in the 90s by John McTiernan, who made Die Hard, starring Pierce Brosnan and Rene Russo. They're heist movies. Mm -hmm. I've seen the original. I don't remember it very well. I definitely don't remember the song. Mm -hmm. uh, it won the Oscar. I'm guessing if we heard the original version, it wouldn't sound like this. Like you said, this is just anxiety manifest. As we talk about it, it does kind of remind me of timepiece. Like it's it's played more for comedy, but that sort of frantic energy that comes with it. As someone who suffers from anxiety, I was like, yeah, that's what it feels like. <laughs> you can look calm and say you're calm and then inside you're screaming and yelling and running. I love this one. It's definitely my favorite sketch that I've seen in these first two episodes. Something about this, this premiere, we aren't seeing them do as many technical sketches for the sake of like showing what you can do with Muppets. Oh no, man. Did you see those gingerbread men? I think that's just nightmare fuel. Like it's it's playing with space, but um, sorry, I'm stuck with it. They just, they just look like they're wearing pajamas. It's okay. They're like it's <laughs> they're in your head rent free, and you should really be charging them a lot more than that. But like fresh out of the pan, sweet gingerbread man. There's this feeling to this first episode in particular when it sort of feels like the Muppet team is just saying we're here. Like we have arrived. We are here. We know what we're doing. We are three quarters as confident as Prince Rogers Nelson will be in his prime, which is still six times as confident as most people will be in their entire life. It's a lot of math, but checks out. <laughs> and it's it's nice to see it because the first season, they're engineers, right? They're figuring out what works, they're figuring out what doesn't work. And this season, it feels more like we're going to see them being showmen, uh, which they're not mutually exclusive at all. To me, this episode felt like they were stretching. Yeah. They were limbering up for their for the season. Not pushing themselves too hard, just kind of getting loose. On the outside, I'm very calm. 
as it's running, like you said, its wheels are kind of fixed on a pinwheel and it's got like a moving background behind it. So Jerry is controlling the puppet while it's got this mechanism that's running its legs while it's got this background rushing by. Do you think that was a physical mechanism or was that because they learned to do more stuff with robotics and gadgets for Emmett Otter? I'm guessing that's like physically on like a, yeah, some kind of mechanical thing that's spinning around the legs. I liked though when it's over, he ends up running off the stage and then Statler and Waldorf comment on it. He's the inspiration for Sonic the Hedgehog. He really is very Sonic-like. Oh yeah, you gotta go fast. And he ends up coming into their booth. Well, how'd you like that opening number? Mm. Oh, I didn't notice it. Didn't notice it? How's that possible? It was loud and rockets with a screaming thing running amok. Oh, how could you not notice it? Well, in the future, I'll try to be more observant. <laughs> you do that, please? Heads right off the box like he's John Wilkes Booth. <laughs> I, I'm actually kind of worried about Waldorf in this episode. I, these might be signs of declining health. Oh, you think these guys aren't well? All right. <laughs> well, I mean, in many ways, but, you know. After the sketch, we go backstage again where Floyd wants to talk to Kermit about the closing number. And one of the things I really liked is we didn't really see a lot of Floyd's personality until the last two or three episodes of season one. And right on the heels of that, we see Floyd coming back and being difficult again. And Kermit's obviously got a long enough memory to be like, oh, Fozzie can deal with this guy. He's still doing the walk. He's still doing the little pimp walk that Jerry Nelson gave him. Is it a pimp walk if he doesn't have a cane? A hepcat walk? I guess. I don't know what it's supposed to be. He's just too groovy to walk like us squares. You can't turn a square with that kind of gait. But he wants to talk to Kermit about the closing number, and Fozzie starts to try to hide behind his clipboard, because... The band's asked me to have a word with you. Yeah? Yeah, I refer specifically to the closing number. Oh, boy. Kermit points right at Fozzie and says that Fozzie chose the, the closing number, at which point... Right under the bus. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean... Here's the thing. Is there's not a bus coming, but he thinks there is, and he throws Fozzie under. Kermit spends the first third of this episode trying to invoke the Sword of Damocles on Fozzie and just be like, you think you can do my job? Do it. See how easy it is for you. Yeah. Throws him right under the Electric Mayhem tour bus. <laughs> Pretty much. This is not my fault this time. See, because Fozzie Bear helped me plan tonight's show, and he was the one that wanted the band to play Lullaby of Birdland. That was Fozzie. Fozzie came up with the idea of playing Lullaby of Birdland, which is a jazz classic. It's one of the first songs on the show that I knew outside of the show's context. It's probably one of my favorite songs, actually, but Floyd also is a big fan of the, the song because... Lullaby of Birdland is a jazz classic. At last, we got some decent music in this game. Like we talked about at the beginning, none of this is in the Disney Plus version. Every reference to Lullaby of Birdland, including the performance of Lullaby of Birdland, is not on Disney Plus. I believe it's a rights thing for the song. But what they did then is retcon the whole episode to remove any mention of it. And in doing so, they completely neutered the backstage story. The backstage story makes zero sense without the references to Lullaby on Birdland, because that's what the entire thing is about. So if you have the DVDs, watch them on DVD. The Disney Plus version is a travesty. Following that, we see our, our guest star again. Don is on stage to present a Beast of the Week, uh, which is a children's program, which is probably your first warning sign. <laughs> Presenting hideous and grotesque creatures. So this seems like it was a better spin on what they did with Harvey Corman as the, uh, the ringmaster in season one. I was going to mention the same thing, yeah. Don unveils a baby creature, which looks a little bit like a Tribble from Star Trek. Or Fizzgig from Dark Crystal. That's actually a better reference, yeah. No, no, Fizzgig. You stay here. Dole. 
actual fur ball, and it's supposed to be in an escape-proof cage. Honestly, as I'm talking about this, it felt a little bit like uh, the, the Corman sketch crossed with a Muppet Labs sketch. It's very Muppet Labs. The beats feel the same. The baby gets out and just starts to trash the studio. Oh, <laughs> oh look at that. He's found something shaped like himself. I believe he thinks they're related. Isn't that cute, boys and girls? He's trying to make friends. I'll just uh, get the glove. Invades Don's personal space pretty quickly. Like, it slides under his shirt, and I'm not really sure where the baby's going, but then it pops up at his shoulder. The setup at the end, of course, is that the mo- or I think they said it really early in the sketch, actually. The mom is very, very protective and doesn't like to be separated from its baby, but they got it away while she was sleeping, because that's always a good idea. The sketch ends. We talked about how Jim likes to end with explosions or someone getting eaten, and I guess this would be more of an explosion. But the the mom predictably does come in, and she's a bear with a distended jaw, as far as I can tell. Like mean mama. I mean, she's technically a monster, but yeah, she does kind of look like a bear with a snake jaw. Or something. We've got to get this little fella back to its mother before she wakes up. You see, the mother is very possessive of its offspring, and if she should discover it missing, she could get very upset. Don makes it out in one piece, which is kind of nice. But the very end of the sketch, after Mean Mama shows up and collects her child and leaves, Don does the only, it's not a problem, but like the thing I noticed that he does a lot in this episode, and it's just part of that style of humor, is he does a lot of mugging at the end. He like kind of looks straight to camera and is just doing kind of faces. He does that a few times in this where his humor is entirely like the humor is just coming from him making funny faces. I do think that that's a good part of his shtick, though. Which brings us back to the backstage, where Fozzie is now moved on to feeling himself and being very happy about it. And Floyd shows up again to tell him that the band... Fozzie, you're so hip, you make us flip. In fact, we just took a vote and made you a bonafide registered hip dude. You have one more shave. My shave! Yeah, now these are the official Charlie Park Lives super cool sunglasses. Thank you! Welcome to Groovydom. At which point, Fozzie gets sunglasses that he can wear at night, but not very effectively because he can't see where he's going. We're living in an era where just wearing sunglasses means you're cool. Not that you, you know, don't want the sun to damage your eyes. We move from there to our first veterinarian's hospital of season two. Our veterinarian's hospital, the continuing story of a quack who's gone to the dogs. Where we see our friend the screaming thing again. And he's, he's on his side. You see the pinwheel there, which... Raises questions I'm not sure I want answered. It's best not to think about his biology. <laughs> but in this case, we've got Richard Hunt's first appearance as Janice. Jerry Nelson is making his full-time debut as the announcer. And uh, Frank is obviously playing Miss Piggy. So we've got our permanent veterans or veterinarian's hospital cast. Veterans hospital probably would have been a lot less funny. I don't know. I've got a pretty dark sense of humor. That could have gone <laughs> some place amazing. Also thing I wanted to mention, the, the opening. Um, it's now... Uh, the continuing story of a quack who's gone to the dogs. It's the first time they've said that, and that will be the opening for every one of them. Before it was a... The continuing story of a former orthopedic surgeon who's gone to the dogs. I didn't realize that this was going to be the permanent one. I did. I was used to them varying a little bit. 
No, this is pretty much how it stays. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got the screaming thing. Who's this patient? And it's just a bunch of foot jokes. Quentin Tarantino's veterinarian's hospital. I feel like that gets a lot more bloody. What seems to be his problem? I think he has flat feet, Dr. Bob. Looks more like a flat tire to me. I think it's a case of three left feet. (laughs) (laughs) Three feet, Dr. Bob. What do you make of that? Oh, about a yard. (laughs) (laughs) But is it serious, Dr. Bob? Let's face it. This bird has one foot in the grave. But he has three feet on the table. Well, that's nothing. I left two feet in Cincinnati. Oh, about a fathom. It was strange to me. I'm so used to Janice being played by Richard Hunt, but it was still kind of shocking to me to hear what I consider the classic Janice voice because we haven't had her yet. Mm-hmm. I always love a good vet's hospital. It felt like it was shorter than I remember, but I could be wrong. I think they took the phrase UK spot a little too seriously this time. I just assumed that this is something that I uh, wasn't cultured enough to to appreciate. I wasn't either, but I looked it up. <laughs> Like, I, I didn't necessarily think it was a bad sketch or anything like that. It still felt Muppet. It went over my head a little. I'm Bert. Perhaps you've heard of me, Bert. You've had word of me jogging along, hardy and strong, living on plates of fresh air. Burlington Birdie is a music hall song from 1900, actually, written by a guy named Harry Norris about a, a upper class British gentleman. Over the years, though, it became something that was parodied a lot. And there was this William Hargraves in 1914 wrote a version of it that's a satire called Burlington Burley from Bo. Bo was, I don't know about now, but at the time was considered a poorer neighborhood in East London. And the lyrics were changed so that now it kind of plays as like the song is about this guy and he's just basically this gray whatnot. But the song is about a guy talking about what a sophisticated gentleman he is. But what this the version that they're using in this episode does is it kind of twists it and makes fun of it and the fact that he's he's actually not that he's not exactly what he says he is, you know? And then that's supposed to, and again, in the original, that's indicated by the fact that he's from this neighborhood that would be considered not super posh. But yeah, it's just, it's just a song, <laughs> you know? It's just a song. It surprised me in retrospect that this was the UK spot because we're going to get to one that I thought was the UK spot in a minute. It's probably the most British UK spot we've ever had. Yeah. I'm Bert, Bert, the royalties hurt when they ask me to dine, I say no. I've just had a banana with Lady Diana. I'm Burlington Birdie from Poe. We go back to Fozzie and we get our... Effectively, Fozzie is now embracing his cool, even if it means that he he can't necessarily see what's in front of him. (laughs) Yeah, that's the running joke with Fozzie. He gets these shades to show how cool he is, and he keeps bumping into things because he can't see. Frank did such a great job by just having Fozzie face the other way as he addressed Don. Yeah. Like, it's such a yeah, small really thing. Good. It's such a simple thing. But just him being genuinely excited to see whatever blank void he sees behind those glasses and hear the voice of Don Knotts. Fozzie looks so great. Like, he looks like Fozzie now. Yeah. And the new puppet is great. With every guest we saw who had a dynamic with Fozzie, they would take on either an emotionally supportive or a, a mentor type role. And this is no exception. Don sees Fozzie and he's a little confused at first, but then he understands because glasses make you cool. And he's got his own glasses, which have these 80 style green frames, which I imagine weren't in style yet. But when Don puts on his sunglasses, he also can't see and he ends up tripping off the stage. We weren't using the word as much back then, but I mean, you know, he's playing a nerd, right? Nerd! 
That's kind of what he is. I mean, no one who thinks they're cool is cool. Yeah, I, I think they're leaning pretty heavily into a certain lack of self-awareness. But he does that bit where he, like, tries to act cool. The band gave me these because they think I am so hip. Oh, I see. <laughs> I always wanted to be hip. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, personally, I've never had that problem. Oh, yeah. Well, you know how it is when you got it, you got it. I mean, when you're hip, you're hip, you know what I mean? If you're so hip, where are your shades? All right, so this next one, I have very conflicted feelings about this next thing. Is this what you thought was the UK spot? I absolutely thought this was the UK spot. It also looks like one of those 80s mall photographs that you see. in Glamour shots. Yeah. Something about the soft focus around the sides. You say that like they're these old relics, and I'm old enough to like remember in high school when the girls got their glamour shots. It was like a big deal. <laughs> those are weirdly like childhood fixtures for me because I grew up in the 90s, but like my parents had us young, so a lot of my mom's friends had those the shots where they're looking in through that like one life to live focus. Vignetting around the corners, big smear of Vaseline on the lens or whatever. <laughs> it's probably just a filter, but. The old trick was he put Vaseline on the lens to make everybody seem a little softer. So the thing is, the first place my mind went after that initial 80s confusion was Rolf's crush on Lassie and wondering if this is Rolf's child. And I'm just singing the child a lullaby, which isn't contextualized. <laughs> but realistically, if they took a second to contextualize this at all, someone's going to be a punchline for it. And so it's it's weirdly tender, but also that dog is not aware much of what's going on. Rolf is singing a song to a puppy. I want to say this first off, when you do things like this, or at least when they used to do things like this in television, I'm pretty sure the dog is sedated. It's hard. You know, they always say don't work with children or animals. And the reason why is because you can't control them. I get the feeling like this dog is uh, a little sleepy and might be sedated. And I don't support things like that. So I just wanted to point that out, that that was a a method that people used to use. And I don't 100% know if that's true, but I would put money on it, that that's what they did to get this real life dog to lay there quietly while this puppet sang to him. They probably had to trank him a little bit. What does he sing to this dog, though, Nick? (laughs) He sings What a Wonderful World, and the thing is... I see trees of green, red roses too, I see them bloom for me and you, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. It sang like a lullaby, and... Outside of a, I kidnapped this random puppy and have now sedated it so I could sing to it as though it's my child context, it would be a very sweet and touching thing um, if that were actually Rolf's puppy, where he's just being very gentle and affectionate with it. There are many classes of love songs, but I'm going to say for, for the purposes of this conversation that there are two classes of love songs, and there are the love songs that you could sing to your kids without it being weird, and there are the love songs that you can't sing to your kids without it being weird. And What a Wonderful World is one of those love songs you can sing to your kids without it being weird. I sing my kids, Baby, It's Cold Outside. Is that wrong? That depends on who you're talking to. <laughs> I mean, I grew up in the... New, I'm, joking, like, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. I was a kid during the New Jack Swing era. Who sang you Motown Philly when you were little? No one did. But I think one of the first songs I learned the lyrics to was I Want to Sex You Up, which is a weird thing because I was like three at the time. <laughs> TikTok, you don't stop, stop. No one sang that to me, for the record. And just imagine all of the people that didn't know what Afternoon Delight was about. It's like, oh, this is a nice thing to sing to a kid. It's not. No. What a Wonderful World is one of those songs. It's very, it's innocuous. You can just sing it and say, I appreciate you. How comfortable are we with this mixing of 
Muppet dog and real dog. So Chad, I need you to know that if we're going to if we're going to explore this, we're going down <laughs> We're going down a rabbit hole. Yes, I think to myself. What a wonderful world. Okay, and by yeah, rabbit hole, I mean Roger Rabbit. Because we're yeah. going to be making a comparison between Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Cool World, and that might derail the episode. <laughs> Let's not do that. That sounds like a good bonus episode, though, where we talk about Cool World and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Spoilers, one of those movies is better than the other. Yeah. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Um, we we move from that backstage again where TikTok, you don't stop, stop. Fozzie's still rocking the shades, which I think Fozzie's doing the shade like he's wearing them underneath the ears, like they're completely supported by his nose. Yeah. Floyd comes up to say hi to Fozzie again and let him know that one of the band members wants to thank him personally for planning the Birdland number. Of course, it's Animal, which the thing is, dipping is Animal's love language. <laughs> yep. Listen, you know, one of the dudes in the band is so turned on by yeah. the fact that you suggested we do Lullaby of Birdland, yeah. he'd like to shake your hand personally. Hey, I to say! Okay. <laughs> I, I want to say that Animal kicked him in the shin. I don't think he did. I think he just, uh... He's kinda, he just kind of tackles him, I think. Right? Yeah. Like, he, he takes Fozzie down, but... Floyd's like, Animal, you promised, man. Come on. You, told, <laughs> you said you'd be cool. <laughs> Uh, I didn't know it hurt to be hip. I love when Floyd tells Animal to heal. I want. I do want to point out this entire segment is missing from Disney Plus. This entire moment is gone because, again, it's all it is all centered around the closing number that doesn't exist. So yeah, this entire scene is not there. I guess the higher level concerns that come with not having the rights to something, you were probably between a rock and a hard place. They were. And, and like I said, their decision was to then just excise it from the entire episode. And it just, it makes it a very choppy and unfulfilling episode. Yeah, that entire thing is is gone. The next thing's there, though. I'm trying to figure out what specifically he was trying to do, because I think he was trying to make some sort of a fish soup. Yeah, like a chowder. But he just throws the fish in the bowl. <laughs> he throws it, he just puts a live fish in a bowl and, and decides he's going to make chowder, but then all he does is punch it. <laughs> like, he gets into a fight with the fish, and it's really funny. The hands are just kind of smashing down on the fish. But yeah, I don't know what his recipe was. I think it's just blunt force trauma. I thought it was completely one note, but I loved... I loved the performance. Was Frank playing the fish? Frank does the arms. Mm -hmm. Frank is the hands and the arms of the chef. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's a pretty typical Swedish chef. No blunderbuss this time, but yeah. <laughs> the next sketch isn't doing as much. We're, we're backstage again. We're getting ready for Lullaby of Birdland, which we've been preparing for all episode. I imagine at this point on Disney Plus, it just drops off. Yeah, there's a little bit of it. it. It's basically cut in half. Yeah, they keep the half of it that's talking about Fozzie being cool, but not the half about the actual number. Speaking of which, uh, since I'm playing vibes in this number, we're going to need another player for the bass. Boy, how can I find a bass player now? You're on. Hey, connect, no problem. I 
have already found the perfect bass player. Floyd, you just go out there and start cooking, baby. Ah, uh, yeah, my bell. I knew you would, yes. Yes, all right. And uh, I will introduce this number for my hip brothers, Green Stuff. Who usually plays bass? Is that Janice? No, Floyd is the bassist. Hmm. He even says in the number, though, that he's playing a certain part and they need like a second bassist to do it properly. They need like a stand. He's not a stand up bass guy. Mm-hmm. He plays a bass guitar. They need a stand up bass player. And, and yes. And so we get to our final number again, not on Disney Plus, where what have we talked about all first season where where the backstage story culminates on stage? Mm-hmm. And here it is perfectly set up. If you have the DVD. <laughs> Uno, dos, tres. <laughs> get into Lullaby for Birdland with our bass player being played by none other than Don Knotts. There's a great bit where Don's there and he's getting all of his stuff set up and getting out of sheet music and... Sheet music? I haven't seen that stuff for years. Look at that. The cat can follow the dot. He's very dismissive of sheet music. But he's also kind of impressed. He's also like, huh, alright. I didn't know people still did that. They start playing. doesn't really know how to play the bass. And to Electric Mayhem's credit, they don't necessarily want him to play it correctly. They just want him to play faster. Yeah, at first he tries it with the bow, but you don't play this type of jazz with the bow, right? This type of bass with the bow, you gotta pluck it. So after he tries that, he tosses the bow and he plays it by hand. And then, yeah, and then it's just a sequence of them playing the song while Don Knotts hams it the hell up. It's just Don Knotts trying to look cool playing a stand-up bass. We should talk about Lullaby and Birdland a little bit. Just, I don't know if we give credit for it, but it's written by George Weiss and George Shearing. It's from 1852. 1852? Or... Sorry, in 1952. I know, um, it, I know it had to do with Charlie Parker. Well, yeah, because it was written for the owner of the New York Jazz Club, Birdland. There actually is a history to the name. And yeah, it's just Don trying to keep up with the mayhem in a comedically inept way while he mugs and makes faces. <laughs> But honestly, that's kind of on brand, though, because the entire point is to be hip and be cool. And so everything about the body language is just... My favorite line in this, though, is after they do the first little round and Don's using the bow and it doesn't go well, they stop. What in the blue perfect past tense was that? Gotta love some grammar humor. Maybe I'm the only one who who likes grammar humor, but I appreciate it. I've completely forgotten how to diagram sentences, and I don't feel worse for it. You know, this this is the culmination of the episode. This is how the episode is supposed to end. So it's a real shame that it's not online. If you watch the Disney Plus version, here's the story. Floyd, for no reason whatsoever, comes at the Fozzie and says, hey, we've decided you're cool. Here are your sunglasses. Then at the end of the episode, Floyd goes to Fozzie and says, hey, you're not cool anymore. We want our sunglasses back. End of story. So we get to the the curtain call and uh, Floyd has some bad news for Fozzie. Fozzie's not cool anymore. Me and the band just took another vote because of what happened in the Birdland number. Uh-huh. Yeah. You have been officially and permanently de-shaded. <laughs> Take off your pants. Oh, no. Oh, don't worry, Fozzie. Always remember. And Don ends up telling everybody at the end, of course, that square is beautiful. Or, as Huey Lewis would later say, it's hip to be square. Just seeing uh, Uma Thurman making the invisible square in the middle of the air. Don't be a... It's a good episode. Again, I understand why, but it's a shame that it's not more complete on Disney+. Plus. But, uh, you know, I like Don Knotts.
Tonight's special guest star has many, many talents. Let's see, he acts, he sings, he dances, he does comedy, and they all add up to a great big zero for Zero Mustel. Episode number 202, special guest star Zero Mustel, produced May 31st to June 2nd, 1977. Came out in December of uh, 1977 and not till March of 78 in the UK. Directed by Peter Harris, again, written, of course, by Jewel Henson and now Bailey and Hinckley. We do have one very important new face this episode. My beaker runneth over. We have, uh, we get, we are introduced to Beaker, played by Richard Hunt, Dr. Bunsen Honeydew's hapless, abused, mostly nonverbal assistant. Is it supposed to be another language he speaks? Um, anxiety? I don't know. Yeah. And then there's another character in this that it really, she only shows up in one episode, but Granny the Gouger, the professional wrestler played by uh, Jerry Nelson. Samuel Joel Zero Mostel was born February 18th, 1915 in Brooklyn to his mother Celia, a Polish Jew raised in Vienna, and his father Israel, who was of Eastern European Jewish origin. After a short time in Moodis, Connecticut, uh, where the Mostels bought a farm and made money from owning a winery and a slaughterhouse, uh, they moved back to New York, where Israel took work as a wine chemist, which sounds pretty cool. While Samuel's father thought his son's quick wit and intelligence and empathy had him pegged for life as a rabbi, he had different ideas. Zira Mostel was an artist. He would spend days at the Metropolitan Museum of Art copying paintings in his notebook for practice. Apparently, his favorite piece to mimic was American John White Alexander's Study in Black and Green, which features a woman contemplating the corsage on her ornate gown, which is black and green. Zero, which was apparently a nickname given by his mother, who was unpleased with her son's early school performances and would tell him often that if he continued that way, he would amount to zero. Uh, he spoke English, Yiddish, Italian, and German, was an A student in high school, and his senior yearbook noted under his picture, quote, a future Rembrandt or perhaps a comedian, which pretty much sums up Zero Mustel, painter and funny man, not a combination you see every day. Zero attended the City College of New York, where he went to every class he could, sometimes taking his art classes more than once just to get in as much painting time as possible. I mean, that seems like a theme with him. He was always looking, he was always just looking for somewhere to paint, you know, no matter what he was doing, he just, he just wanted some time to paint. He graduated with a bachelor's degree and it started working on his master's when he quit school and joined the Public Works of Art Project as an art teacher. The PWAP was a New Deal program designed to help artists out during the Great Depression. Quote, to give work to artists by arranging to have competent representatives of the profession embellish public buildings. So they were kind of like federally funded taggers and mural artists. <laughs> the project is responsible for the murals at San Francisco's Coit Tower and the Astronomer's Monument at the Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles. But the PWAP only lasted six months, running from December 33 to June of 34. He was married in 1939, but that didn't take. He was still living that art-first, everything-else-second lifestyle and wasn't doing a whole lot to support his family. Zero's entry into the entertainment business is one I've honestly never heard. While working at PWAP, Mostel would go to New York museums and give gallery talks as an art expert. Thing is, dude was funny. And he couldn't help but be so during these speeches. I imagine him kind of as like one of those like Disney Jungle Cruise guys. Yeah, his job is to keep you from being eaten by crocodiles. But did you check out his set last night at the comedy store? You know, that kind of guy? Right over there. Does anybody know what that is? It is a snake. That's a giant python. You gotta be careful though. It could get you wrapped up in a very constricting relationship. Some people find my snake puns hysterical. 
soon, uh, Zero's lectures became more comedic than educational, and they got more popular because of that, actually. And so he was invited to entertain at parties and other social situations. He also performed at labor union social clubs, where he could be funny, but also express his more left-leaning beliefs. In 1941, a Greenwich Village nightclub, the famous Cafe Society, hired Zero as a comedian and offered him a regular spot on stage. This led to radio, Broadway, movies, and exclusive nightclub gigs. In 1943, though, uh, Mostel was drafted by the U.S. Army, but was honorably discharged after only a few months. Uh, No real reason was given. But he would perform in USO shows until the end of the war. In 1944, he married Kate Harkin, a Radio City Music Hall rockette. Um, His parents never approved of this uh, because she was a Gentile, but uh, they worked together until his death and had two children. After the war, Zero got back onto the stage and TV screen. He had his own show in 48 called Off the Record and a live show called Channel Zero, which would totally be the name of his YouTube channel if he had one. He started doing movies in 1950, starring in Elliot Kazan's Panic in the Streets and uh, several other films before his contract was ended abruptly, probably because the studio knew what was coming. Because in January of 1952, screenwriter Martin Berkeley identified Mostel to the House Un-American Activities Committee as being a member of the Communist Party. Zero was blacklisted, and when testifying in front of HUAC, named no names and invoked his Fifth Amendment rights. Damn right he did. Uh, He was unemployable throughout the rest of the 50s, uh, which sucks, but it also gave him time to paint, which Zero was kind of okay with. He actually said he looked back on those times with fondness because he didn't have to worry about anything. He could just paint. It also came out at the time that Mostel had been investigated while he was in the army for his political sympathies and uh, that military intelligence believed that he was, quote, definitely a communist. In the late 50s, Mostel started creeping back into show business, doing some off-Broadway plays for sympathetic producers. Blacklist nonsense was starting to recede a little bit, and Zero got a few small TV roles. Uh, In January of 1960, Zero was hit by the number 18 86th Street Crosstown bus and shattered his leg. He refused amputation, which they recommended, but he said no, uh, because that would end his stage career, and he was hospitalized for four months. The injury would be a problem for the rest of his life. After getting out of the hospital, Zero played Estragon in a TV adaptation of Waiting for Godot, did a run in Eugene Ionesco's Rhinoceros, and then came the the one-two punch. Uh, Mostel was in the original cast of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, where he sang the opening number, Comedy Tonight. Something aesthetic, something frenetic, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. See episode 104 of The Muppet Show. And then in 64, he opened his tevye in Fiddler on the Roof. If I were a rich man, all day long I'd if I were a wealthy man. He did 3,242 performances of Fiddler, a record at the time for anyone, and received a Tony Award for the role. Uh, he also did a movie for A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, and in 68, of course, he appeared as producer Max Bialystok in Mel Brooks's The Producers. It's so simple. Step one, we find the worst play in the world, a surefire flop. Step two, I raise a million bucks. A lot of little old ladies in the world. Step three, you go back to work on the books. Only list of backers, one for the government, one for us. You can do it, Bloom. You're a wizard. Step four, we open on Broadway. And before you can say step five, we close on Broadway. Step six, 
We take our million bucks, we fly to Rio de Janeiro. Rio, <coughs> Rio, In his final decade, Zero kind of receded to supporting roles in not-so-great films. Um, he was in the front with Woody Allen, though. Uh, he was in a big-screen adaptation of Rhinoceros and voiced a seagull in Watership Down. In mid-1977, he was a guest star on ITV's The Muppet Show. He would be the series' first and only posthumous guest star. Later that year, during rehearsals for a play in Philadelphia, Zero collapsed and was diagnosed with a respiratory disorder. It looked like he was going to recover, but then he lost consciousness again and never woke up. Zero Mostel died of an aortic aneurysm on September 8, 1977. He was 62. His Muppet Show episode aired three months later. I mostly knew him from the producers. I know that's stunning. I haven't seen the original producers. I've seen the more recent one. The musical movie based on the stage musical, which was based on the movie that was not a musical. I'm going to say yes. I like Zero in this a lot. He was great. Unfortunately, I'd already, I had already done my research, so I knew that like he didn't have much time left on this earth, which kind of sucks, you know? But uh, he was really fantastic. Zero Mostel, 25 seconds, stand by. <coughs> Mr. Mostel? Hey, Fozzie, where's Mr. Mostel? Oh, he's in his dressing room eating. I'm not in my dressing room eating. I'm in my dressing room being eaten. And uh, uh, Behemoth, one of the big orange monsters, is trying to eat him. And to placate him, Zero's like shoving other food into his mouth, like pouring water in his mouth. <laughs> like, eat this, not me. There's an interesting dynamic between the two guest stars that we see this week, because Don was Don Knotts being around the Muppets, and I think Zero is more the, more of a Muppet than a lot of the Muppets on the episode. We have our opening credits. This time, Gonzo, when he uh, blows his trumpet for the final note, fireworks come out of it. It actually looks like they stuck, it really looks like they just took like a Roman candle or something mm-hmm. in the trumpet and let it on fire. So then Kermit comes out and he's going to introduce the first act and Sam is super excited because Kermit has come out to introduce a concert pianist to play a very sophisticated piece of music. And Sam is very excited by this until Fozzie pokes his head out of the curtain to to tell Kermit that... Kermit, Kermit, the concert pianist could not make it. Yeah, but I just introduced the Polonese. That's okay. Here, here. I I, I got a whole new intro written. Good luck, kid. Let's see. uh, Oh, uh, okay, ladies and gentlemen, Chopin's Polonese in A-flat. As performed by Dr. Teeth. What? Polonaise in A-flat is um, the 53rd opus of Polish composer Frederick Chopin. Uh, and it's, one of, the, of course, one of the more famous composers of piano and all of classical music. Um, it was written in 1852. I, I went back and I listened to the original piece, and then I, I watched this episode. And they, they are, you can tell... So basically what we get is an Electric Mayhem cover of a Chopin piano ballad. How'd it go? I would say that it went pretty well. We've, we've talked before about how much we love it when Electric Mayhem just gets up there and jams. Pretty traditional way to open them up at show, but always welcome. We have two kind of, I won't call this a backstage story, but Throughout this entire episode, Statler and Waldorf are watching television in their box. (laughs) 
<laughs> they've just decided they're done with the Muppet Show, even though they keep coming. They could stay home and watch TV, but again, we think it's part of a court order, so. <laughs> uh, but they've smuggled in a small black and white television and they're watching um, stuff. Uh, I think the first thing they're watching is a movie called Beach Blanket Frankenstein. Mm, awful. Terrible film. Yeah, well, we could watch The Muppet Show instead. Mm, mm. Wonderful. Terrific film. But they're also flipping the channels at one point. They changed the channel. And what does Statler say or Wolder say? He goes, What is that? It looks like two ancient old guys sitting in a theater box watching television. That's crazy. No one would watch junk like that. Much like episode 124, the backstage story has me concerned about the labor practices at the Muppet Show. Floyd reminds Kermit that today is payday, and Kermit checks the cash box, uh, but it only contains three moths and a washer. So they're running low on cash. And then Scooter hears the conversation and he says, like, well, why don't I call my uncle? How much money do you need? And Kermit says that his entire payroll is $27.14. Wow, that's high finance. I feel like adjusting that for inflation is just going to make me sad. It's still not going to work. <laughs> adjusted for inflation, it's still criminal. I mean, I mean, I know these guys aren't union, but $27 for his payroll. Now, I mean, we know Fozzie's not getting paid anything. I don't think any of the acts are getting paid. That's just got to be like janitorial and stuff. Maybe that's why he fired George. He needed to... <laughs> <laughs> Scooter, uh, for the first time on the show, Scooter calls his uncle to help someone. And he calls his uncle and says, Kermit needs some money to make the payroll. Uh-huh. 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 <laughs> uh, what did he say? He said, uh-huh. Terrific! Now, first of all, I don't think that's something you want to tell your landlord. It's, And he agrees to help Kermit out on the money, if. Uh, if what? If you put some good old-fashioned entertainment back into the show. Oh, yeah, you mean like an Irish tenor? No. A dog act? A jugglers? Spoon players? What? Lady wrestlers. <laughs> Terrific. I was afraid he wanted something tasteless. J.P. Gross, living up to his name. He just wants some good old-fashioned lady wrestlers on the show. That's going to be Kermit's quest <laughs> for the episode. So, I know you were very young... Yeah. At the time, but yeah. was um, women's wrestling a big deal in the 70s? It does feel like an antiquated joke in this episode just because WWE and everything have, you know, fairly large slates of female wrestlers now. Yeah, it was kind of, but then it was considered kind of a salacious thing. Like, think about like mud wrestling, you know, um, or roller derby. I think it was kind of seen in the same light as those things. Because remember, we're talking 1977, there's still societal norms about what's feminine and what's not. There are still things that ladies just don't do, which of course is nonsense because ladies can do anything. But there is that kind of built-in cultural thing that like lady, lady wrestler sounds ridiculous, or at the very least, it sounds tawdry. So we'll see in this that the whole idea of having lady wrestlers is pretty insulting to everyone because it was at the time considered to be purient entertainment. So we get our first number for Zero. This is a pretty complicated one. Zero comes out. He's dressed up as Henry VIII, <laughs> wearing a very kind of standard Henry VIII costume. And he sings the song, What Do Simple Folk Do? With his queen. The queen, of course, is played by the same queen that was used in the Twiggy episode, which is just Featherstone with a wig. The song was written by Lerner and Lowe for their 1960 musical Camelot. And it was originally sung by King Arthur and Queen Guinevere, played in the original production by Richard Burton and Julie Andrews. And it's it's a king, is originally, I think, in the second act of the play. And it's King Arthur pontificating upon what it's like to be one of the people. What do, do the simple, the simple folk, folk do? Folk do? To help them escape when they're blue. 
The shepherd who is ailing, the milkmaid who is glum, the cobbler who is wailing, while nailing his thumb. The queen in this is voiced by a woman named Rashinda Carey. This is part of her audition for the show. Over the next three episodes, they're going to audition three different women to come on as cast members to replace Aaron Oscar. This woman, uh, Rashinda Carey, did not get the job. Once along the road, I came upon a lad singing in the voice three times his size. Basically, it's it's kind of an opera. The queen tells him, like, lad, and singing always made his spirits rise. So that's what simple folk do. I surmise. They sing? I surmise. Pagliacci, which is a very, very famous Italian opera by Ruggiero Leoncavallo from 1892. Um, but it's actually very, it's its kind of like, when you think of opera, it's one of the key little pieces of singing that can kind of come to your head. And then the song says, well, what else do they do? And they dance. Uh, and then he does a little weird dance. What else do they do? And I love the ending of it because the queen says, uh, They sit around and wonder what royal folk will do. I do want to take a second out because we keep doing this and at some point it's <laughs> it's just going to occur to us that we haven't asked the question in a while. We see Muppy again and we're never sure when the last time we're going to see Muppy is. I think Muppy's safe until we find Fufu, Piggy's dog. <laughs> what do you think of uh, what do the simple folk do? I mean, I, I'm of two minds because on one hand it felt like it ran a little long, but on the other hand, I just like seeing Zero play. He chews the scenery anytime he's on screen and... I'm kind of sad that this is his last performance because yeah. just, I don't, I haven't seen him in anything else. He's one of those um, living life to the fullest type of characters. <laughs> He's really fun to watch. We go backstage and Kermit is on the phone desperately trying to find lady wrestlers for the show tonight. And uh, someone knocks on the door uh, and he's on the phone. So he asks Animal to get the door. And so Animal, of course, I mean, what's Animal going to do when you tell him to get the door? He's going to do what you asked him to do. He's going to bring you the door. Ah, get the door! Maybe I can try Mother of the Mower. Here, door! And then at the very end of that segment, before we get to the next one, an old lady, a, a, a woman probably in her 60s or 70s, I would say. It's a weird thing because I feel like most of the ways that we would try to soften it are just demeaning. Like, my dad likes to say that he's not old, he's seasoned. But if we say that she's seasoned, we sound like cannibals. So we're just going to call her an old lady Muppet. Yeah, so an old gray-haired lady comes in. <laughs> and we don't really know what she's about yet. So then we go to our first At The Dance of the second season. If you notice, it's a whole new cast of dancers. At The Dances from last season would sometimes be theme thematized around a single thing. But this, every single thing in here is just tennis. It's all tennis jokes. It was so bizarre. If, like, John McEnroe was the guest, or Arthur Ashe was the guest, then okay, a whole bunch of tennis jokes, sure. 
I wonder if like Jerry Jewell has a lot of tennis in the off season. You know, I mean, he went, he lives in he lived in L.A. Maybe he went back to L.A. Played a lot of tennis with some famous people and came back. It was like all I could think about was tennis. Does track for the seven days. My tennis instructor says I've been using too small a racket. Well, why not get a big racket? <laughs> you say you want a big racket? Yeah. So now we have our UK spot, which is bizarre because we get a new location. Where are they in this? So when I when I imagine the UK spot, I just sort of look at it as something that you could extract from the episode and not it won't be tied to anything else in the episode. But this is referencing Sam being Sam, but you know It doesn't advance the storyline, so I can see how you can cut it. But yeah, Kermit talks with Sam about his role in the show. I feel my job is to make sure this program is morally upright and cultural and wholesome. And Kermit says what I've been saying this entire time, that I don't really know what it is you do here. Kermit knows Sam is not employed by the Muppets. I think that's a thread that he doesn't want to pull at, because if he does, then all these other people that aren't getting paid to be there will also wonder why they're there and what they're doing for it. And right now, it's just like this weird sort of found family commune where they see the green guy get a little purple at times. Counterpoint, he's terrified of Sam. All right, I'll bite. Sam isn't well. We know that Sam wandered off the street one day and said, hey, I'm your new standards and practice guy. I'm a well-educated, cultured eagle who will be the arbiter of taste. And Kermit said, well, we don't have that and we don't have a job for you. And he keeps coming around. But look at those eyes. Tell me if you don't placate him, he's not going to snap. I've always found Sam's very severe look to be like slightly frightening. And uh, I just think Kermit's like, we just keep him happy. We just keep him happy. Make sure he takes his meds. Hey, big guy. Sun's getting real low. But what's interesting in this scene, though, is it looks like they're in like the basement or a backstage room or something. It's not the normal room. I don't think I noticed that at the time. I'll have to go back and rewatch it. Yeah, it's very strange. Um, It has an appearance by the beautiful day monster who gives Sam his uh, (laughs) just desserts by hitting him in the face with a pie. We'll see if this set comes back or if it was something that was just thrown up real fast for the UK spot or not. And it's very funny how Kermit is trying to tell Sam about how cultural the show's going to be and cannot get the word lady wrestlers out of his mouth. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, let's see. Uh, tonight's show is very classy. It's very highbrow. You'll like this show. Oh, good. Yes. Yes. Tell me more. Uh, well, let's see. We got uh, Fozzie is doing a pantomime mm-hmm. with Zero mm-hmm. Mistel. Mm-hmm. Got a musical number. Musical with, uh, number. Good, good. With Zoot mm-hmm. and Ralph. And then, of course, we mm-hmm. got uh, we got the lady... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, la- the lady wrestlers. <laughs> the what? Uh, oh, oh, nothing, Sam. It's just uh, we got uh, some lady, uh, lady, uh, lady wrestlers. Uh, stand by for the pantomime number. They do what? Uh, uh, lady wrestlers. Rest what? Blurs. <laughs> lady wrestlers? This is so tawdry. They would dare have lady wrestlers. That's what the simple folk do as Henry VIII might say. Dr. Bunsen Honeydew here at Muppet Labs, where the future is being made today. Our first appearance of Bunsen's buddy, Beaker. We've talked before about how Bunsen, like, it never looks like he actually wants to be trying out these experiments because he knows they're going to go wrong. Mm -hmm. So basically, Beaker's brought in as a sacrificial guinea pig, right? Between seasons, Bunsen's like, I'm not doing that shit anymore. You either bring someone in to take my hits for me or I walk. (laughs) Now there's just this rolling train of schadenfreude. who's like, oh, it's not happening to me. Come here, Beaker. Well, he obviously creates horrible death trap machines. So, you know, he just doesn't want them to be used on him. So Bunsen uh, has invented magnetic carrots. 
perfect for storing on the ceiling of your refrigerator, which I thought was strange. But Beaker makes his first appearance and he peeks his head out from around the corner and he already looks terrified. And all I'm thinking of, what was the interview process like? If he's already scared. (laughs) I feel like I've worked a number of jobs in which I've heard the management staff literally say, we just need warm bodies. (laughs) We need you to be able to carry a tray, wipe down a table, and not piss yourself on the floor. If you can do those three things, you've got a job. I think Beaker knows he's in for it. (laughs) Imagine he's like fresh out of high school or, you know, maybe he's a a freshman in college and he's already blown through the money his dad gave him for like his first semester. And so now he's doing that thing where people go and do like, uh, you know, they'll like sell blood or they'll participate in medical studies for cash. Yeah, but somehow Beaker, this poor soul who seems... I don't know. He seems sweet, but sometimes he seems kind of like a dick. But I think that's the years are going to harden him. (laughs) We go to Zero's dressing room. This is kind of like a continuation of the UK spot in a way. That's why I think it's you're you're right. It feels kind of weird that that was the UK spot because we're kind of piggybacking onto that. This feels like it's the backstage story. Like, even though we've got the lady wrestlers angle that we're trying to work, Kermit's not the focus of the backstage story. It's entirely Sam. I think they're one and the same, though, right? Because the... Kermit trying to get lady wrestlers is an affront to Sam. It's like sense of culture. So it's kind of, they kind of go hand in hand. Hmm. But Sam uh, comes in and gives Zero a lecture on dignity. I am Sam the Eagle. I'm so I am glad the... to know you. Mm, yes, glad to know you. I am the upholder of decency and dignity for this show. Are you really? Mm, yes. I believe this program is trivial and. <laughs> not fit for family viewing. It is, it is disgracefully lacking in culture. It is disgracefully lacking in culture. Mm, I'm glad you agree with me, yes. And Zero just uh, mocks him behind his back (laughs) and is very funny doing it. That was the scene that had me submit my opinion that Zero is more of a Muppet than a lot of the Muppets. Yeah, he's really good at it. Yeah, he's just making faces. At one point, he picks up a hammer and it looks like he's about to go old boy on him. <laughs> you and I think alike. Well, it's been a pleasure, a pleasure talking to you, sir. A man of dignity. Dignity. Always dignity. 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 Backstage, Kermit finally gets around with, uh, okay, Muppet Wiki calls her an elderly woman. So elderly woman, I guess, is better than old lady. Her name is Granny the Gouger. She is a professional wrestler. And uh, Kermit thinks that's funny. Uh, you want to audition? Mm. Oh, that's very funny. Is this some kind of a joke or something? Joke? Funny? Young man, it's not nice to make fun of an old lady. You're going to be old yourself someday. But she uh, proves him wrong, I guess. She she seems to be a fan of percussive convincing. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, Kermit kind of scoffs at the fact that she would be a wrestler and he she shows him that uh, I can do this and she roughs him up pretty bad. And when that day comes, you're going to be sorry you weren't nicer to Granny. Now, here's the sketch that I would have thought was the UK spot. Zoot and Rolf playing Smoke Gets In Your Eyes. Nineteen thirty-three song by Otto Harbach and Jerome Kern for the musical Roberta, starring Bob Hope. Rufus, actually, before he was Muppy, performed this with the Smothers Brothers on a nineteen seventy-five episode of Share. 
Rolf and Zoot are playing it, and as things go on, smoke starts to come out of Zoot's saxophone, and, event- and they, they start coughing, and eventually it makes it to the point where they can't perform anymore, although they valiantly try to perform through all the smoke. You can totally see the thing in his uh, sax that's making the smoke. Just looks like Zoot's college dorm, doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't not look like that. You know he tried smoking weed through his sax in college. Like, they didn't have a bowl or anything, and Zoot was like, hey man, let's, let's, try, the, let's try to do it in the sax. I've taken a hit out of a lightsaber before. I had a friend who used to make uh, what he called lit sabers. <laughs> he would buy the plastic, like a plastic Star Wars lightsaber, you know, from the store. And then he would hollow out, hollow it out and he would t- make a bong out of it. His masterpiece being, of course, his Darth Maul double-bladed lit saber. Of course. Don't do drugs. Um, <laughs> I do like how they're kind of like trying to get through it, despite the fact that they're choking and coughing. The show must go on. So then we get to Zero Mostel's The Raven. Not quite, but we get to a number called Fears of Zero, where Zero recites a poem, which was written by Jerry Jewell, about someone talking to and confronting their fears. But it really feels like The Raven. It feels like a Poe story, right? Yeah, I, I would say that's pretty accurate. Although, at the same time, it definitely feels like this was written for Zero, especially given how you see a repeating pattern of one set of fears being trumped by another, being trumped by another, up to the point where he disappears, which further cements my opinion that Zero is actually a Muppet. And here I come some nights to confront my fears. <laughs> They are always with me, lurking, scurrying, hiding, and waiting. They come, and they go. He's dramatizing this poem, and and all these little Muppets are there to represent his fears. But it is a one-man show, and it is just him going ham. And here alone at night, I can confront them. (laughs) There they are, confronted fears. Fears of hunger, fears of pain, fears of missing the last train, fear of dentists always drilling, fear that no one will be willing to see me as I know I really am. They just gave him a couple of pages of text and said, what can you do with this? And he just makes a meal out of it. I thought this was really cool. I thought it was pretty solid. There are other fears. Fears of bullets, there's a dread. Fear of boldness on the head. You know, waking up one morning to discover that you are dead. Once they are counted and compelled, they can quickly be dispelled. So then we go backstage and, you know, the show's almost over and Kermit's freaking out because in order to make payroll, he's got to get a lady wrestling thing on. And he can't, he's got Granny the Gouger now, but he can't find someone to wrestle against Granny. And he's thinking, he's thinking out loud. (laughs) He says, what does he say? He's like, Oh, where in the world am I going to find another heavyweight, aggressive, tough female with a killer's instinct? She's got to be strong, and she's got to be tough, and she's got to be up for the fight. Exactly. Yes, exactly. He, he needs a hero. And then Piggy entered classic comedy timing. He lists all these things about this woman, and the woman who fits the criteria walks right in. Hello, Chris. Oh, oh, hi, Miss Piggy. And pray tell, what is my wonderfulness doing? 
Oh, well, you see, I was just thinking that you'd be perfect for a special spot in tonight's show. You have created a spot just for moi? Oh, tell me about it, my little green ball. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, well, you see, uh, this is a spot that requires an actress with tremendous strength. Yes. Uh, versatility. Yes. Uh, and someone who's all female. Oh, oh, what is it? Uh, Joan of Arc? Uh, no. Not the Marietta? Well, uh, no. Oh, Lady Macbeth. Well, it, it's more like a lady wrestler. If you wanted any indication of what the thoughts about lady wrestling was in 1977, watch Piggy's reaction. Well, yeah, it's a, it's the sort of thing where you you, uh, you have to have the ability to. I mean, wrestlers are. I just want to say, because we've been going into the fact that there's no money in the Muppet Show, Kermit's health insurance <laughs> must be great. Right? I mean, it's shot in England, so it might just be a different set of concerns, but I'm just imagining <laughs> $27 isn't going to get you past a copay. So Piggy's not happy that Kermit would suggest her for a lady wrestler. Turns out she would have been the right choice. She is very upset, and it's very funny. Then we get a weird little bit where Animal plays a drum solo, and then his drum catches on fire. That's probably not the first time that's happened. No, but that's it. That's it, though. That's all it is. We have been building up to a finale with the lady wrestling, although it doesn't have anything to do with Zero. He's not too much of a personality in this outside of his sketches. Mm-hmm. Don Knotts at least had that conversation with Fozzie. We don't really get that with Zero at all. But we get to the lady wrestling, and uh, this harkens back to the sex and violence special to me a little bit. Yeah, the setup looks very similar. But Kermit has not been able to find someone to wrestle Granny, so he's going to do it in a wig. (laughs) The show must go on. Tonight we're going to present you with a cultural demonstration of female grace and dexterity. So here they are, direct from the Bally High Bolodrome, Granny the Gouger and the mysterious Ms. Mask. Kermit gets the shit kicked out of him. I'm still aware that Kermit was able to throw down with Debo Rat for a few days, so I'm wondering if this is just Kermit not wanting to hit a woman. No, she wrecks him. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm not saying she couldn't (laughs) have taken him if he was willing to fight. I'm just like... Don't give him excuses. The fact that Kermit canonically has been able to throw down with someone three times his size is something that is now seared into my memory, and it colors any other thing that's vaguely combat-like. Maybe that's because he was doing it for love, and in this case, it's just for money. That could be it. Did you ever think about that? That he cares more about love than money? To be fair... That's not true at all. Kermit's totally a capitalist. Yeah. <laughs> He's out there dressed in a wig because he needs $27 to pay his people and pay them poorly, by the way. It's not like he's doing something noble to get his payroll out. Like, he's doing the bare minimum. So, but it's very funny when the granny just beats him up. Hope your insurance is paid, frog. And then Piggy comes in. Here's the thing about Piggy. She's a very much a uh, only I can make fun of my man type of thing. She does not like it when other people pick on her frog. What did you do to my frog? Hmm? I'll show you. It wouldn't have been wrestling. It would have been more mixed martial arts, I think. I was about to say, I don't think, like, there's no bouncing back off the ropes. There's no attempt at pin. There's only the Russian concussion. And... Well, and then and then Piggy with the, the karate chop. Piggy uh, lays Granny out for what she did to the frog. Because I think Granny, like, throws him out of the ring. Like, she really meant... Oh, she throws him into the balcony. Yeah. Yeah, and then she she tosses him out of the ring, and he ends up in Statler and Waldorf's box, where they're still watching television, by the way. Better give up, frog. 
slap and leave show business. All in all, I think a really good episode. Yeah, both of the episodes are really solid this week. Zero is fantastic. I wish he had a little more to do in it. I wish they had found a way for him to be involved in the lady wrestling number, even if he was just in the audience or something, you know? Mm-hmm. Actually, what I, w- I would have loved for him to be like the, the ring girl, have him come out like a halter top holding up the, the round numbers, you know? That would be amazing. Well, that's about it for another Muppet Show. Some of us have taken great pains to bring you this show. Uh, but right now, I'd like to thank our special guest star who has joined the ranks of the Muppet Monsters, Mr. Zero Mustel! Come on in! <laughs> Next time. Hey, check out the legs on that chicken. So that finishes off the first two episodes of season two. We got a lot of great stuff coming up. Next week, we will be discussing episode 203 with guest star Milton Burl and episode 204 with impressionist Rich Little. We'll be back in a week from now uh, talking about those two episodes. So until then, I am Chad. And I'm Nick. Have a good one. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. This show is awful. Terrible. Disgusting. See you next week? Of course. (laughs)